Oh, I was gonna go to Macy's, but Dillard's is having a sale. Man plans his steps, but the Lord directs his path. Look at these purses. Excuse me, this is fashion now? Lean not on your own understanding. Oh, Spencer's gifts? Mm-mm, guard your heart. Finish line? Oh, yes, run the race I have set before you. 30% off all things work together for good. Oh, would you look at these here? Run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. Uh, no thank you, I don't need any skincare samples. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Oh, there Starbucks, thank heaven, streams in the desert. Look at these watches for such a time as this. Look at all this baggage. No, thank you. I have left my burdens at the cross. Oh, I love this bedding. Yes, all who are weary, he will give you rest. Look at these knives. These are perfect. Iron sharpens iron. Oh, man does not live by bread alone. Hey, Adam, you want to take a bite of this? Mm-mm, man's original sin. Microsoft only for me, thank you. Oh, Lululemon, he will not tempt you beyond what you can handle. Oh, Zales, absolutely not. My treasure is in heaven. Payless is having a sale. Lead me not into temptation. Oh, judge all you want to. You without sin cast the first stone. Oh, love this hat. Look at this. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. I will dwell in the Nestle Toll House of the Lord forever. I come all the way in here for a sale and they don't have my size. Jesus, please, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Once again, Kairos, it's great to be with you. My name is Danny. I'm a pastor here. Uh, and I just realized that for those of you who aren't in this room, for those of you who are in Iowa City, we had a huge storm here tonight. It's still going on. Uh, you could basically uh, equivalent it to what? I don't know, like essentially like a giant snow wave smashed down on Ames. And, and it's, it's crazy, but is this not like the best snow weather because it's not that cold? You can go outside, have a snowball fight later, just me and my wife, that's it? Okay, cool, that's fine. Abby, I'll see you out there. Anyway, uh, but hi to our friends in Iowa City. We're so glad to be back together. I hope you had an amazing break. We did too. Um, we cried a lot. We wept in our loneliness waiting for you to come back and, and here you are. We've made it. We're opening a brand new series called How to Read the Bible. In that clip, you see a guy who's taking a lot of Bible verses out of context. He knows the Bible, but maybe he doesn't really know the Bible. In this series, we want you to know the Bible. And so over four weeks, we're going to discuss four different things about God's Word that helps us understand God's Word and, and just helps us very practically read God's Word. First off, I want you to know that the Bible is a, it's a really big deal. Did you know that? So there are only seven books that have ever been sold more than 100 million times. Here's a list of three of them. You may already know this. The Lord of the Rings, 150 million copies. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, not my personal favorite, but 120 million copies. And The Hobbit, 100 million copies. Lots and lots of copies of these books have been sold. They're considered some of the most influential books because so many people have read them. Something that you might not know is missing at the top of the New York Times bestselling list every single week is the actual number one book at the top of the list. It's not like they're trying to be mean or ignore something. It's just that there would be one book every single week, this week, last week, the week before, 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 and all of the weeks to come. Here's how many copies of the Holy Bible have been distributed. Five to seven billion copies. By far, the Bible has been printed and distributed more than any other book in the history of humanity. So whether the Bible is a big deal to you or not, it, it is incredibly relevant. And because it's been read so many times and because it's been distributed so often, it is likely the most influential book that has ever existed. So what is it? What is the Bible? Something that might surprise you is maybe what the Bible is not. So here's the list of things that the Bible is not. The Bible is not a fortune teller, a riddle, 
a take it or leave it buffet, bias validation, or cake. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. It's not a fortune teller in that the Bible is not simply created to tell you exactly what you should do practically every single day. There still might be some mystery after you read the Bible. It's not there to predict, to predict your future, but rather it's something to be read, something to hold, something to care for, something to learn from. The Bible's also not a riddle. Sometimes we think that the Bible is this riddle about the things that are to come at the end of the world. And if I just uncrack them, and if I sit in the right position and look at the right stars, I, I might know what it is. The Bible's also not a take it or leave it buffet. You know, when you went to Old Country Buffet back in the day, anybody know what I mean? Anyway, but the Old Country Buffet back in the day, you take some stuff, you leave some stuff. But God's word is something where God says, I want you to take the whole thing. It's not like we pick out parts that we like and parts that we don't like. The Bible is also not bias validation, which means I don't go to the Bible just simply to prove my point in a debate. Instead, I go to the Bible and I allow it to lead me. And then finally, the Bible is not just cake. It's not just dessert. It's not just something we do, you know, when we're looking for a little extra. It's actually the foundations. It's the meat. It's what we're really looking for. See, it's important that we know that the Bible is not this stuff because when we think the Bible is this kind of stuff, all of a sudden we're doing that thing where we just kind of like flip open our Bible and we're like, where's this one verse and it's gonna tell me exactly how my day is gonna go. And maybe you would just so happen to find Jeremiah chapter four, which reads, my bowels, my bowels, a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because thou has heard the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. If you just read that out of context, what do you think you just read? You just read a man's battle with the toilet, right? But that's not what Jeremiah chapter four is about. Rather, the Bible is something that is precious. And it's something that's been handled like a precious jewel throughout history as well. At Queen Elizabeth's enthronement, they said this to her when they presented to her the Holy Bible. We present you with this book, the most valuable thing which this world affords. It means a lot. It's really important. That doesn't mean that when you walk around with the Bible, you need to be so careful. Like, oh no, I hope I didn't drop it. Oh no, I can't write in it. Oh no, what if I tore a page? Look at this Bible, it's falling apart. And I tell you what, show me a Bible that's falling apart and I'll show you a life that's not. You know what I mean? Come on. I've been in church for too long. You know what I'm saying? Here's what the Bible says about God's word and how we should treat it, and how we should handle it, and what it should mean to us. In Psalm chapter 19, talking about God's word, they are more, than, they are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold, in case you thought it was a comparison between even the best gold. They're sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. Mm. Jesus said this, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What's so special about it? Again, what? Is it? On a very practical level, the rest of this sermon might start to feel a little bit like a survey, and I think that that's okay. So whether you're here in the room, whether you're in Iowa City, where I know like a lot of our folks are watching on YouTube tonight, hiding from the storm, and I, I don't blame you one bit. I might just hide here the rest of the night, to be honest. Everybody want to have a sleepover? Let's not. That's creepy. All right. Anyway. But feel free to take notes, take pictures of the slides, different things like that. I, I hope that this does come across a bit practical. A bit like a lesson, maybe even more than a sermon, but I can't promise I won't feel a little inspired by the end. So what's, what's the Bible? Now, what might surprise you is the Bible's actually not just one book. Instead, it's a library. So you can know God's, book, God's library is the Bible, known as God's library. 
It's separated into two sections. Maybe you already know this. There's the Old Testament, which is 39 books, and the New Testament, which is 27 books, which makes for a total of 66 books. Awesome. We got some math scholars in the house. Great. Now, there are 40 authors that wrote the books of the Bible over the course of 1,400 years. That can trip us up because we start to think, well, wait a second. I thought that this was God's word. How could human hands write what was God's word? This is something that I think is worth taking a look into. Way back in the day, in the late 1600s, there was a great English architect, and he designed St. Paul's Cathedral in England. By the time that he was 79 years old is when that cathedral was finally finished. Do you think that a 79-year-old man was going out there finishing off the touches and putting the concrete in between the bricks making sure that everything was out there? Do you think that he carried every single rock to every single place? Well, of course not. But he was the inspiration behind it. And so it is with the Bible. It is God's inspiration pouring through human hands, writing his word. God's the author, and he presents it to us through human authors. Now, let's go ahead and talk about what each section is about. First, we've got the Old Testament. Now, in the, ancient, in the ancient world, they knew this as the Tanakh. Everybody go ahead and say Tanakh. What does Tanakh mean? Tanakh is an alliteration, or not an alliteration, excuse me. It is a, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for when it's like the beginning of each letter is a word? Acronym, thank you so much. I'm like, it, and then, oh, <laughs> beautiful, thank you. I, I need to return to third grade, so... That's all, or acrostic is probably a little more advanced than third graders, isn't it? Anyway, well, hey, anyway, so there's an acronym and it's Tanakh. And it's the letter in the Hebrew alphabet that makes the T. And that stands for Torah. And these are the foundations of God's story to people. So these are the laws and the earliest stories that we have about God. You might know these as the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are the foundations. And then it moves into Naveem. Everybody say that. Naveem. It's kind of got a longer eye there. And Naveem literally means prophets. And that word prophets in ancient Hebrew, of course, is Naveem. And it starts with the letter N, or at least our equivalent to that in the, Eng or in the English alphabet. And these are the prophets' perspectives of all these different stories that take place throughout the Old Testament. So you've got the foundations how God's creating the world and he's got an intention for it. And then all of a sudden you see the results of how humanity's handled that from the perspective of all these different prophets. And then the final one is, is Ketuvim. Everybody say Ketuvim. Now these are poetic and wisdom literature. These are the things that soothe your soul. These are things that feel nice when you read them, but really you're kind of like, what? What did I just read? But it's in there, and it's important that we take a look at this. What, what, what does it mean? It's this poetic and beautiful thing. And, and the purpose of it is what? Because sometimes when we're reading the Bible, we're like, oh, God, why don't you just tell me exactly what you want word for word? Why would you include all these different kinds of writings, and especially poetic? Like, well, what, what's the point of that? I think that the reason why there are some of these writings in the Bible and why some of it is metaphorical is because God is actually asking us to step into a new territory in our minds, in our spirit, in our emotions, that we might get off of the old beaten path, the way that we always see the world, instead start to ex exercise different parts of our soul to really get to know him. When God wants to get to know you, he wants to get to know you in every single way. And so it shouldn't surprise us 
that God writes in every single sort of way. If I were to outline just very, very simply what the Tanakh looks like, very, very foundational level, I think that we could put it into three parts. The first one is there's a beautiful mind. At the very beginning of the Bible, we have this beautiful insight into what what happens in God's mind and how he's able to take chaos and create it into order just through his word. He speaks this. There's something very important about God's word. It's powerful. It's not just precious. It's powerful. It's creative. And then there's humanity's choice. This is where people oftentimes get really caught up when we think about the Bible. Think about it like this. Humanity has a choice in the Bible, and the first one that they have comes down to a tree. A tree is one of the few things that I ever learned how to draw and like draw quickly and like kind of like in cartoon form. There's a guy at our church, his name's Mark Brandt. He was my youth director. Now he works as our online minister. Maybe you know him because when you go home, you watch Hope Online, and he showed me how to draw a tree. He said, just draw a bunch of brown lines, and then when you're done with that, draw a bunch of green dots. Voila, I feel like Bob Ross up here, people. (laughs) I just said the tree is like the one thing I know how to draw well. No, I don't, okay? I get it. But it, it comes down to this tree, this choice that they have to make. And the choice that they have to make is, am I going to let God define good and evil based off of his word, or am I going to decide what's good and evil based off of my thoughts, in my interpretations, in my perspectives? This may not surprise you, but humanity chose their own choice, right? And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see this tension that exists, and we see all these sorts of problems, and we see chaos that happens within this order that God created from the chaos. I mean, it's confusing. God, if you made this perfect place, why did you let us screw it up? Why is there so much brokenness? Why is there so much sin? Why is there so much death? It comes back to this decision. Does God's word get to define what's right and what's wrong? Or do my words and my thoughts and my perspectives get to define what's right and what's wrong? Remember, scripture tells us that God's word is more precious than the best gold. It's more delicious than the best honey. And then sometimes we just kind of choose our own thing. And and I get it. When we think about it like that, it's very easy to make the decision. But what about when you're in the moment? You're like, do I really want to follow God's way or do I want to go with what's comfortable? Do I really want to go with God's way or do I want to go with what's easy? And because humanity at the tree chose to eat some fruit from a tree that God said, do not eat, they chose that they get to decide what's right and what's wrong. And so we see this tension and we see this fall throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But in this, in the Tanakh, there's also a promised savior. And you might be surprised just how early that promised savior shows up. It shows up all the way as early as Genesis chapter three, the very third chapter of the Bible. And in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, God is talking to this kind of mysterious evil one who's described as a serpent. And God makes a promise. This mysterious evil serpent is the one who infected humanity with this desire and this temptation to do what's wrong, to decide on their own what is right and what is wrong. And so God says to the serpent, he doesn't gossip with humanity, or he doesn't gossip with the serpent about humanity. See how pathetic they are? No, he he actually attacks what has attacked us. And he says this in Genesis chapter 3.15. I will cause hostility between you and the woman, the woman, as I wrote there, oops, and between you and your offspring and her offspring, and he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The Old Testament 
points not just to something, but someone. That is so important to remember when you're reading these ancient stories from the Bible. I asked you earlier, what are the emotions that come about? What are the feelings that you feel inside your heart when you think about the Bible? And for some people, if we're answering totally honestly, especially when we read the Old Testament passages and stories, we think God is an angry, grumpy, mean jerk. How could you let the world get this corrupt and this broken? But the point of the Old Testament is to show something is missing. There is tension. There is brokenness. And so when you read the Old Testament and you're getting uncomfortable, good. Because it's pointing to someone who might come and fulfill those things. Who might come and fix those things. Who might come and redeem this world. Who might come and bring order back to the chaos. If you read the Old Testament and you're wondering, how could a good God let stuff like this happen? It's because he's pointing to someone who's going to fix it all. If you're feeling those things, you are feeling what God, the author, felt as these things are happening. How could this world be so broken? That's wrong. It's terrible. It's breaking my heart. And so I'll do something about it. There will be someone who comes from the offspring of the woman to heal this broken land. Now, the Old Testament, surprisingly, it it just ends. Just ends like that. This coming one didn't come. What happened? Their Savior is still missing. In hundreds of years after the final book of the New Testament was written, we get to the New Testament. Everybody say New Testament. This is sometimes, I think, what people feel like is a little bit more comfortable to read, or at least it's more comfortable to think about until you actually read it. You're like, wow, that's still pretty convicting and wild. Now, one thing that I want to talk about with the New Testament is don't call it a comeback. Sometimes when we talk about comebacks, we're like completely refreshed and completely renewed and somebody's redesigned. It's like, I've totally changed the way that I play this game so that I can do it right. Now, when God shows up in the New Testament, he's not saying I did it wrong. He's saying, I'm here to make right what is wrong. I'm here to bring what is wrong back to what I always intended. And so Jesus says this when he walks into the world. And Jesus is claiming that he's the continuation of this Old Testament promise. He's saying, do you remember that something was missing? Do you remember that someone was missing? Do you remember the tension that you felt when you read about and you heard these stories and you wondered, how could the world be so broken? I'm the one who's come to fix it. I'm the one who's come to fulfill it. I'm not coming back and ignoring what I once had. Instead, he says in Matthew chapter five, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. And what was that purpose? It's pointing not just to something, but someone. And Jesus is saying, I'm the someone. So if I could summarize the Old Testament into three quick points. Mind if I do that really quick? Again, we don't call it a comeback. Jesus lives, he dies, he resurrects, and he ascends. We see the life in the story of Jesus. He lives a perfect life. He dies a criminal's death on a cross. And then he ascends into heaven where he still sits to reign over the world. And then the church is born. So like, hey, you showed up. Like, you're a part of this. Isn't that great? And it talks about how the church spread like wildfire and how this Jesus movement showed up everywhere. And then finally, the, Old Te- the New Testament also points to something in the future where everything sad will come untrue. But because it was once true, it will be infinitely more enjoyable and satisfying knowing that the sad things have gone away and the new reality 
is one that is good, one that is one for life, one that is one that won't be taken away from you. It lasts forever. Now, when we read these stories, it is so important to go back and remember what we already started to pick up in the Old Testament. There's these different kinds of writings. Throughout the entire Bible, there are different kinds of writings. Because you might say, okay, well, there's the summary of God's entire story, right? So if I just read the Bible, I'm gonna get a point-by-point summary of exactly how that happened. And every single word will be historically accurate and exactly the way that God wants me to read it. Again, God puts some things in the Bible so that you would actually step off the old beaten path and actually enter into a new space in your mind and your heart and your soul to experience God in a new way. Here are three genres that show up in the Bible. The first is narrative. Almost half of the Bible is written in narrative, in narrative form. That's really cool because narrative form, it's like the universal form of communication. You've got stories, right? You've got protagonists and antagonists and there's conflict. And it's a way that we can take the seemingly random situations in our life and and almost put order from the chaos of them to make sense, to find meaning, to seek deeper purpose and encounter resolution. There's also poetic, and we kind of talked about that already in the Old Testament. Again, it allows you to step into a new mental or spiritual or soul territory to have this new encounter with God. And then finally, there's prose discourse. These oftentimes show up in the form of letters. It encourages you to think logically about what you're doing. Now also think logically about another way. And therefore, because there is this new way, you could do it this new way, and then you would have a new form of life. And I'm like really, really paraphrasing all of the prose discourse. But it's essentially telling us, think logically and do something about it. It's this invitation. It's pointing us to something new. Now, when we read the Bible like that, it actually changes so much about how we see it. Do you see on how God is using all these different languages to speak to us all from different places, different perspectives, different mindsets? The same God wants to communicate with you. And what does he want to communicate with you? I think that one way that we can start to realize that is when we consider what form of like overall literature is the Bible. So when you think about like narrative literature, when you think about poetic, when you think about prose, you can maybe think easily like, okay, well, in 21st century uh, literature, it's very easy to think about that. Like narrative, you think Hunger Games, Great Gatsby, easy, narrative, stories. When you think poetic, you think like uh, Walt Whitman, uh, you think Taylor Swift, Katy Perry, you know, clearly poetic, right? When you think of prose discourse, you think of like the news, you think of articles, you think of journals, you think of studies, Now, when we think about those things in our day, we oftentimes attribute them to 21st century readers. But when we read the Bible, it's important to step into what might the original readers have been thinking? How did they read this? So they read as ancient Jewish people, ancient Jewish literature. And what do we know about ancient Jewish literature and how does this help us understand God's whole Bible? The first is ancient Jewish literature, it lacks details, but that's for a reason. When you read the story about Adam and Eve, you're like, well, there's a tree, but it's not talking about all the details of the garden. Then it talks about a fruit, but it doesn't actually tell you what kind of fruit that they ate, even though we all all the time think that it's an apple. It tells you about a serpent, but it doesn't actually give an actual name to that serpent. It has all these different things, but it actually lacks some significant detail. And what's the point? Why wouldn't God just reveal every single detail? It's because all of scripture is actually interconnected. 
And so these ancient Jewish writers, as they're writing down, they're willing to take this risk for lack of detail so that you might see how all of scripture actually works together. For example, in Genesis chapter three, when God says to the serpent, the offspring of the woman is going to crush you with his heel. And that thing that the Old Testament is pointing to, that one who the Old Testament is pointing to is going to come. And you can actually start to see as you read throughout the Bible that this offspring means a lot, which is why when you read the Old Testament, you might get really, really bored when you're reading all these different genealogies and all this heritage. You're like, God, why are you so obsessed with grandparents? Because in the very beginning, God made a promise about the offspring of a woman and how he would come to make things right. How he would come to have a decision to make. Because Jesus came and he had a decision to make too. And he had a decision to make at a tree. And his tree was a cross. And so where humanity failed at a tree, trying to define on their own what is, what, what is right and what is wrong, Jesus, fully God and perfectly human, he makes a decision at a tree too. And while we have driven God to make this decision for us, his decision brings us back to life with him. Sure, the Bible lacks detail in certain places, but it is inviting you to see the big picture, to see how it's connected, to see how God is actually behind all this. 40 authors over 1,400 years. He's been working in all of it to what? To show you that his decision always outweighs our wrong decisions. He determined that you were righteous and to be back with him. It's connected. So when you read this, we are invited to read it slowly. In Psalm chapter one, it talks about the ideal Bible reader. It says, reading it slowly, meditatively. And when you meditate, according to ancient Hebrew scriptures, it's actually a word that means to mutter. You read it slowly, out loud to yourself. But then, as you're reading it, you realize that what you're reading starts to read you. And as you're starting to see how this story is connected and you're starting to learn more about God and who he is and what he's done, you realize that he's telling you things about yourself too. God's not just telling you about him. God's telling us about us. And finally, it, it prompts discussion. Do you notice in the Bible, it says, our father. It doesn't say, my father. In their later uh, uh, New Testament writings, rather than saying, my Lord, almost every single time it says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Did you know that in the Bible, it doesn't say your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but rather it talks about a family community of Jesus Christ. We're meant to do this together. If you are a part of Lutheran Church of Hope um, on the weekends, you may already know this, but we're reading the whole Holy Bible in a year in 2023. Um, I want to show you a QR code if you want to find the, um, the Bible reading plan, because sometimes it's like, well, where, where in the world do I start? Well, we've created a Bible reading plan for you. So for just a second, I'm going to show you guys um, a QR code that will uh, show you how to get there. You can scan it, whether you're here in Ames or if you're in Iowa City, hopefully that comes up. Real nice and easy. Okay, it'll be just a second because I uploaded that slide late. But the purpose of why I want you all to do this is because the Bible is meant to be read in community. 
and it's meant to spark discussion. This is why we want you to be a part of small groups. It's not just because we want to force you to hang out with each other. It's because God can actually do something wild and great, and he helps you learn more about himself as you gather together learning about him. You will see something new about God by learning about how somebody else is interacting and learning about God. It's this beautiful and incredible experience. There's the QR code. You can go ahead and follow that. It takes you to a page called The Whole Holy Bible in a Year, and it's a reading plan. Um, and you may notice like, oh no, I'm too late. I, I, uh, I, I, I missed it, right? You can always catch up. There's no rule that says that you have to start on January 1st. There's a New Testament track if you just want to read the New Testament in a year. There's a New Testament and Old Testament track if you want to read both. I invite you to check this out. Now, as you're reading, I want to bring you three more practical points to help you understand what's happening when you're reading God's word. And the first thing is this. God's word is his revelation to you. Everybody go ahead and say that word revelation. God's trying to reveal something through scripture. So in 2 Timothy, it says this, all scripture is inspired by God and it is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. Remember at the tree, humanity had a decision. Do I want to allow God to define what's right and what's wrong or am I going to define what's right and what's wrong? And then it says, it corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. Now, if you read that, you're like, oh great, God wants to reveal to me a bunch of rules. Now, let me tell you this. The Bible absolutely does instruct us about proper living. But the Bible is instructing us what life looks like in the garden. What life looks like before it was screwed up. What life looks like before sin entered. That's why Jesus showed up. To reveal to us what that looks like. Now, if you think about life without any rules or without any boundaries, you might be surprised at how miserable that would sound. The way that I think about it is I always think about this. When I was at Warburg College, I was in the gym one day um, where uh, I was in like our athletic facility and there was a volleyball game happening. And it just so happened that on that day, one of the sideline referees was sick. And so they needed somebody else to fill in and become the sideline referee. So very quickly they find me and they're like, hey, Danny, uh, you like sports. Do you want to come in and be the sideline referee for volleyball? And I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. How hard could that be? That'd be really simple. So they put on like this orange polo on me and they give me a flag. They say, all right, when the ball is out, you raise your, your, the flag up like this. And when the ball is in, you put the flag down like that. The game is getting really intense. Warburg is playing Central College. And this was like really intense. Like Warburg Central is equivalent to like, Iowa State and Iowa. Like, it was really, really intense. It mattered who won this game. I did not know the rules of volleyball, period. I don't know anything about volleyball, I guess. I don't even know what's inbounds and what's out of bounds. Every single sport I have ever played, when you touch the out of bounds line, you are out of bounds, not in volleyball. Wartburg has a very, very important point and so they throw the ball up in the air and this girl, this woman, her name's Camille Vianata, she smacks the ball down and then the crowd goes wild. because like, oh my goodness, it was in. But I saw it. The ball landed on the line. And so at this very crucial moment in the game, I raise my flag and I say, out! You would think that I raised up a child and said, off with his head. Everybody starts booing me. I mean, outrageously calling me names, saying things about my physical abilities and about my mother. <laughs> they needed someone there who knew the rules. And so the head official who's like standing up on top of like that staircase by the net looks down and he goes, put your flag down. <laughs> and he's just, that was in. And so I'm like, 
in. <laughs> it's not helpful if we don't know the boundaries and the borders. Like games need rules and, and life needs limitations and life needs boundaries. We're not intended to step out of that. It's not because God's a spoil sport. It's because God loves you and God wants to show you what this world was really supposed to look like, which is the second point. The Bible reveals purpose, the way life was intended to be. In the beginning, the word already existed. You heard this in the Bible reading tonight. The word was with God and the word was God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. Now that's weird, isn't it? Because it was just talking about the word. Everybody say, the word. In John, at the beginning of his gospel account, he sounds like a hippie, doesn't he? In the beginning was a word, man. <laughs> okay, John. <laughs> but then all of a sudden, he's talking about this object and he calls this object a hymn. He gives the object a name. God created everything through him. Nothing was created except through him. He's saying the word is this active, actual, real being. And you're supposed to interact with this God. But there was something so special about that word Word. The word for word was logos. Everybody say logos. Maybe you've heard me talk about this before, but logos was a word that quite literally meant word, but it also meant the meaning of life, the purpose of life. Now, go ahead and step back into what that culture was dealing with those days. When you think about ancient Rome and ancient Greece, the time that Jesus lived, and Jesus as a Jewish man was living under a Roman empire, Think about what you think about when you think about that time. We think about philosophers, the Roman philosophers, the Greek philosophers. And what were the questions that they were asking? What's the meaning? What's the purpose of life? And so they'd come up with all these myths and all these different stories that didn't actually have answers because they thought we couldn't ever actually find the meaning and the purpose of life. And in comes Jesus. And John writing about him uses this philosophically loaded word, logos, the meaning of your life, the one who makes the right decisions, the one who lives the right life, not just so that you would do it, but to suffice for us when we don't do it. He's come. This is the purpose. But here's the best part. The Bible calls for relationship with that word, with the meaning and the purpose of life. So the word, the meaning and the purpose of life did not want to remain a mystery to you. And he made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the, the, the glory of the father's one and only son, the glory of Jesus. It's Jesus he doesn't stay far away in a balcony in heaven. He gets down and he gets close. He wants to be near to you. The Bible calls for relationship with God. To further the point later in the book of John, which follows our reading for tonight in John chapter five, it says this on the next slide. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. This book is not powerful simply because it's a bunch of little pages, a bunch of little words, and it's wrapped up in sometimes nice leather. 
This book doesn't find its power or its beauty because it was written so well by people with literary skills. This book finds its beauty because of who it contains. Not just what it contains, but who it contains. There's this ancient, old uh, German Catholic priest. His name was Martin Luther. And Martin Luther is who this church, a Lutheran Church of Hope, was named after. And the way that he put it was this. The Bible, what makes it so special? The Bible is the cradle that holds the Christ child. And Jesus is telling us right here, if you take me out of it, if you just try to read the Bible and think it's all about you and it's all about what you can do and it's all about how you find your way from the cross back to life, you're gonna miss it. If you take Jesus out of this, if you take the relationship out of this, if you take just, if you take knowing Jesus, actually knowing him, not just knowing about of him, out of this, then you just have a cradle, wooden straw. But you put Jesus in there and you find the purpose. Think about the best things that you've ever received through the mail. You ever gotten a letter before? You ever gotten a card? It's like kind of goes a little bit deeper than a text, doesn't it? Somebody actually like took the time to write, put thought into it. This is my favorite letter or card that I've ever gotten. This is the card that my wife got for me the day before we were married. I'm not gonna read it to you. What makes this powerful? Sure, the words are beautiful. Sure, it, it looks nice. It's who it's from. It's who I know. It's how she loves me. That's what makes it meaningful. That's what makes it significant. So when you read your Bible, above all else, and we've gone through a lot of practical, a lot of thick stuff tonight. This was heavy, I know. But when you read your Bible, you read it like this. The Bible is a love letter from God to you. And it's signed by the blood of Jesus. The Bible is not just a bunch of words that sound nice and look pretty and it's leather binding. It's beautiful because God spent over 1,400 years through over 40 different authors to communicate a message to you. But when the final page of scripture was closed and written and finished, the word didn't stop. The word is still alive. The purpose and the meaning of your life, this relationship that you're called into, it lasts forever because it's not just a bunch of words printed on pages. It's an actual God living and breathing who wants to know you, who wants you to experience him who says, I intended for you to live with the tree. I intended for you to live with life. You chose death, but I have made the, the decision of righteousness. I've made the good choice and I brought you back with me. When you read your Bible, you read it like a love letter from God to you, signed by the blood of Jesus.